0: Before we get started, I wanna tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J E. TS. This podcast is also sponsored by my story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come? What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice? This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show.
1: When I moved to Memphis, it was a very unusual situation with one of our clients and uh, it was back in 1980 when interest rates were 21% and our company was losing millions of dollars a year and we owed millions of dollars and uh, i definitely think i had this fear of failure you know i knew that we had to really pull some things off good and had to had to work real hard to be able to get uh, through what we're doing we had to put our largest company into uh, chapter 11 reorganization you know, the first year i was over in memphis with my new job you know it was just like a little checklist every day what do i have to do to make it through the day and so i wouldn't wish this on anybody but i think probably part of what drove me was was uh, the fear of failure you know because i was 37 years old and had not had a lot of experience and working with people i was from a small accounting firm and uh, all of a sudden I was the president of a company that had a thousand employees doing a hundred million dollars a year in sales. I was so forward over my head, you know, I didn't probably just didn't realize how much, or I don't even know if I would have uh, tackled the job.
0: My guest today is Harry Smith. Harry is a former public accountant, entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. Can you imagine moving to a new city at the age of 37 and taking over one of the largest private companies in that city when it's on the verge of bankruptcy? Well, Harry did. After growing up in Florence, Alabama, Harry was recruited to Memphis, Tennessee to take over Schilling Enterprises. At that time, Schilling did over $100 million in revenue each year and had over 1,000 employees. Harry led the turnaround effort, saved Schilling Enterprises, and turned it into a successful company where he later sold all of the automobile dealerships he owned. In addition to his work with Schilling Enterprises, Harry also owned Schilling Farms, 448 acres outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And partnered with and later sold to boyle investment company and he was also a partner in circle y saddles which is the largest saddle manufacturer in the usa and much more this is a fantastic episode where you'll learn what growing up with a single mother taught him entrepreneurship and work ethic at a young age what he did to survive when taking over a company that was in dire straits how to buy it right how he analyzed and acquired underperforming businesses and turned them into valuable assets, why his success pulled down to the importance of him finding the right partner, why he's grateful for second chances, and much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Harry Smith. Harry, great to see you. Thanks for coming on with this podcast this afternoon.
1: Thank you, Sam. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yes, sir. I've got to say I've had different people on this podcast that have written books, but you're the first one I called you and you said, Hey, have you read my book yet? And I said, no, sir. But I think it'd be best that I do that before we even maybe have another conversation. So I read it the next day and it was such a treat. And I'll put your book in the notes at the end of the show, but, uh, I'm glad I did it. And I wish I'd done that for everyone else, but I'm glad I did it for you.
1: Well, thank you. Well, Sam, when I, uh, wrote the book, uh, My two goals were to honor God and to share with people some things I had learned along the way. And uh, also, I wanted to be sure if I ever wrote a book that it would be short, a lot of white space, and big print. So (laughs) I think I accomplished that.
0: (laughs) Yes, sir. I think you did. First question I got, I've been thinking about this. You know, I read that, and I know this is not a light subject, but I think you'll see why I'm asking, but. I'm curious if you can talk about when you were a child and you talked about learning teamwork with your mother and learning work ethic. And you talked about in your book, your father was an alcoholic, but you learned very early on how to sacrifice. I believe you described it teamwork with your mother, getting things done, getting things working well together. I'm curious if you could just maybe share anything about that early experience and if that was instrumental in those years growing up in high school, things like that?
1: Sure. Well, uh, unfortunately, my my mother and father were divorced when I was five. And I really only saw him one other time after that. I was 15. And uh, we we lived in the house with my grandmother and granddaddy, and they both died when I was about seven years old. And uh, we had apartments upstairs over our house where we lived in. And also we rented out rooms in our house. And so that was kind of one of the ways that we provided income. My mother had to work. She worked at the uh, a knitting mill there in Florence, and she had to uh, quit and take care of me. And so we uh, had our income from renting out uh, rooms in our house and apartments upstairs. And uh, and then when I was uh, nine years old, I got a little paper out uh, carrying papers and then uh, just a year or two later, my mother uh, got a rural paper route out in the country. We went, we went 40 miles uh, every day carrying newspapers, 365 days a year. It was the Birmingham newspaper, but it was in Florence, Alabama. So, of course, not everybody took it. But so my mother and I did that for uh, until I got my driver's license. And when I was 16, then I started carrying them with myself and got somebody to help me. But my mother and I uh, had a special relationship doing that. It was just the two of us. And uh, I was able to learn a lot from her. She was very thrifty, had to be. She had to be good at managing money because we didn't have a lot. But, you know, Sam, back then, I think there was a lot of people in that condition. And uh, I don't think we really realized, you know, that we didn't have it real good. You know, I think that was normal life for us. And that was just the way it was. and. And I don't think we went around saying, oh, woe is me. You know, we don't have this, we don't have that, you know. And, uh, but my mother, I think, did a great job of teaching me good work ethics and also how to how to manage money. And I learned a lot carrying papers about people. Uh, learned how to, of course, sell papers and learn how to collect and manage the money and learn about people. But um, you know, my mother, uh, she did a great job of helping me and learn some valuable lessons in life. Yes, sir.
0: I'm curious, what do you think has changed? You know, I, I, personally, I can think about where when I was growing up. Mainly, it was kind of latter part of more of my teenage years. But if you're around people where you you kind of think or see that maybe their family has a big business, or maybe somebody in their family has had a big business, or maybe they live in you know, really nice neighborhoods and all that kind of stuff, it can easy to feel inferior to people that maybe seem like have a lot of money. I'm just curious, is it more of a technology thing? Is it private school thing? Is it just that the United States has gotten wealthier over time? What do you think has changed or has anything changed to where when you talked about you didn't really think much about it and you talked about there's other people that you felt were around you that also didn't have money? Have things changed in your in your mind, or is it just the difference between living in a bigger city like Memphis versus Florence, Alabama?
1: Well, I think part of it is living in a bigger city. I think there's things in Memphis that uh, that weren't in Florence, so I think that that probably is it. And then there probably were more people in probably more people in Memphis that uh, had more money, you know, financially and all, could send their kids to private schools. And then there was in, in Florence, but I, I, I just was not around that many people that I felt like that that I was even think about having a lot of money or a lot of things that I didn't have, you know, but I'm but then thinking back, you know, over the years, I'm I'm sure that's that's the case. And there were but uh, but I, I think uh, children now, I think they have a lot more than they had then. And, and you know, back then we played in neighborhoods, you know. And, now they're all on these different leagues, you know, football, baseball, soccer, you know, leagues, and I think their families spend a lot more time with them on weekends, going to games and doing things like that, than 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 we did. Because back when I was growing up, you know the uh, the parents worked, you know, especially the father, and he didn't have a lot of time to go to to the ball games and do things like that. So I think the family unit is a lot probably more together than they were then and uh and our our playing back then would be you know one of our neighbors would have a basketball goal in his backyard and we'd go over and shoot basketball or something like that you know so i think there's definitely difference and um i know my grandchildren you know have it uh, better and i'm thankful that they do they learned their good work ethic playing football in uh at alabama but uh and they really never had time to work in, uh, at a McDonald's or carrying papers or doing things like that. But um, yes, I do definitely think it's kind of a combination of all those things together. And was there a
0: sense of security that you had with your mom because you knew that she was on her own and you knew it was just y'all two to where where you saw her working hard, that you felt safe and secure with her? That I mean, you knew y'all had to work hard and scrap, but you also knew that... You trusted her, I guess. Is that a fair statement?
1: Well, I'm sure I did, but I don't I don't have memories of that. You know, I don't I don't remember ever have feel feeling threatened or, you know, uh or lack of security uh or anything like that. You know. We just didn't we didn't have much and so there wasn't a lot to miss, you know. But I don't remember, you know, being concerned about what well, we gonna have enough to eat or anything.
0: Is there any value to someone, man or woman, that grows up to the way that you've laid out where you have to work at a very young age, and then you have to put yourself through school, all those things? Is there a sense of payoff that happens later in life? What can happen for somebody that has to do that versus somebody that might have more comfort financially kind of growing up versus the way when you started working at nine and put yourself through school?
1: Well, and I and I've thought about this before, you know. I think uh, I think God did me a favor by letting me grow up uh, in a meager, you know, kind of a way, and I think I was blessed, really, looking back, to have it tough, you know. You know, we carried our paper route It was three hundred sixty-five days a year, forty miles every day, but I think it was those work ethics, good work ethics, that I learned that really helped me after I got out of school and started working and I, 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 I think it was what some people would think would be a, uh, a hardship to me I take it as a blessing in looking back
0: yes sir was it ever a struggle towing that line between rest or or overwork et cetera? what's that been like and was that more of a struggle early on
1: well I don't know that I thought of it as a struggle so much, but I, I definitely was not a, living a balanced life. I did uh, spend too much time probably at work. You know, one of the outside of the Bible, probably one of the best books I've read is *The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People* by Stephen Covey. Yes, sir. And and he talks a lot about uh, balance, and uh, you know about relationships. I think the most important thing in life are relationships. And uh, you know, first was your maker, was God, and then your family and friends, people you work with. But I, I think the good work ethics came from all that. And 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 then again, back when I was doing that, I didn't think about it being a hardship again. You know, because to me, it was just kind of what life was. And uh, I was in a situation where I needed to work hard, and uh, but I did it and didn't didn't really mind it and didn't think again about what well, was me you know having to work hard but as i got older I, I reached a point in my life when i was i was actually about 50 years old where i said i am going to cut back and I'm going to spend more time now you know my family i just have one daughter but i've got three grand boys and now i've got five great grandchildren but um, you know we did we, we went on vacations and did things and we were in church together but uh if I had it over again, I would spend more time doing little small things with my daughter, building memories. And that's one thing I encourage young people to do today is to build memories uh, with their children. And uh, finding balance in life is, is, uh, is, is, is really tough. But I was under a, a lot of stress, I know, uh, going through the uh, different jobs I had in public accounting for 16 years, but especially when I moved to Memphis and got involved in the dealerships. But the good part about it too is my family has been able to enjoy some of the benefits of my hard work, you know, and so that's been good. And also my daughter has lived behind me, uh, uh, just about all her married life. And so I've had a chance to redeem some of those times I missed out on. And I'm very, very thankful for that. And we have a great relationship.
0: Yes, sir. Is it just kind of the way it goes or are there distinct points that you can look back and say you know, I might've known it then and I might've felt that nudge, I just didn't do it. Or is it more you look back and it's just kind of life's complicated, it moves fast, it kind of is what it is and I'm grateful for where things are now.
1: Well, you know, I think part of, and of course, you know, the name of my book is Driven to Deliver," but I, I think I was kind of driven. When I moved to Memphis, it was a very unusual situation with one of our clients. And uh, it was back in 1980 when interest rates were 21% and our company was losing millions of dollars a year and we owed millions of dollars and uh i i i definitely think i had this fear of failure you know i knew that we had to really pull some things off good and had to had to work real hard to be able to get uh through what we we're doing we had to put our largest company into a chapter 11 reorganization and so there was you know the first year i was over in memphis with my new job you know it was just like my little checklist every day what do I have to do to make it through the day and so I wouldn't wish this on anybody but I think probably part of what drove me was was uh the fear of failure you know because I was 37 years old and had not had a lot of experience and we're working with people I was from a small accounting firm and uh, all of a sudden I was the president of a company that had a thousand employees doing a hundred million dollars a year in sales I was so forward over my head you know I didn't Probably just didn't realize how much, or I don't even know if I would have uh, uh, tackled the job. But, uh, but anyway, that that I guess that fear of failure drove me to work hard, and and you know I, I feel bad even now almost saying that I was kind of driven by a fear of failure, but uh, but I think it was. I mean, because we were in a situation being in bankruptcy that you know we could have lost everything, you know, and. Uh, but thankfully we didn't. And even then, of course, I, you know, I give God all the credit for it. People would say to me later, you know, Hey, you did a really good job of turning the company around. And you know, I'd be embarrassed, but I'd say, you know, that wasn't me that did that. That was God. I mean, God, I had a lot of friends that were praying for me and God was watching after me. And uh, if it hadn't been for him, I couldn't have made it. You know. So. Yes, sir.
0: I'm curious. I read a quote and I know you, one of your closest friends from what I saw is Herbert Ray, and I hope talk about him later on in the conversation. But, you know, I just heard you describe having the entrepreneurial spirit and first showing it at the age of nine. And if just to kind of back up, though, and kind of make it more about society or make, make it more about clients, make it more about the themes that you've seen throughout your life. You know, I know you're CPA accountant. You were CFO at one time. You took over Shilling Enterprises, which, as you said, was doing $100 million dollars. Had a thousand employees and in a really bad, in really bad shape, was having a very large contract terminated by Ford Motor Company that we'll get into. But when you look at people, when you read people throughout what you've done in your career and working with the clients you have, what are the core things that make an actual entrepreneur tick? What do you see in somebody that makes them stand out from somebody that can just be a part of a company, maybe be a, a leader in a company, maybe have a role within a company? whether it's large corporate or small or small business, what's the quirkiness or what are the unique attributes of an entrepreneur that you had at a young age that you've also seen in other people
1: well i think I think first of all it goes back again to good work ethics you know I think working work, working hard and uh you know most businesses oh well really I think all businesses they need two aspects of leadership they need one uh, somebody that uh can have a vision uh, for where they want to take the company. And then I think the other is the management part of it is somebody that can take the vision and put it into, uh, make it a reality. And I think probably a lot of entrepreneurs don't have both of those talents. I think they more have, tend to have a vision about where they see the company maybe going or, or some idea that they have, but they're not always the best people person necessarily. And, uh, and also maybe sometimes not always the best manager. But I think, I think, I think most entrepreneurs would be first of all, hardworking. I I know I've heard some of them speak before that would say that, uh, you know, they felt like that uh, they had to set the example and had to be the role model. And, uh, but some of them really couldn't work well with people. And so I think a good, smart entrepreneur or businessman He will be able to recognize his weaknesses and back them up with people that he brings alongside of him to help run the company. Yes, sir. Which one were you? Well, I think probably I was more not the visionary, but I think I was probably more the the turnaround uh, person, taking something that wasn't doing well and turning it into good, uh, turning it into profitable businesses. Just like with car dealerships, there was two kinds of ways to buy car dealerships. One, you would buy a car dealership that was doing real well and pay a lot of money for it and hope that it kept doing real well. Or you would buy one that was struggling about to go out of business and uh, turn it around. And I was the latter. I would buy ones that were struggling and uh, would turn them around versus somebody that would take one that was doing real good and maybe make it uh, even a whole lot better. Kind of even walk walk into a framed uh, unframed house or a framed house, and it, and it just had the uh, framing up. My wife can walk in, look at it, and see where the bedrooms going to be, the living rooms going to be, and uh, me, I got to wait till the house is finished before I can tell. <laughs> and you know, a lot of that goes by your left side and right side of your brain too. You know, for people that are leaders, people that are managers, and. Uh, and I think, you know, of course, sometimes, you know, a person, a lot of times will have both, both of those. You can do both, but not many times. Yes, sir.
0: So I guess what you're saying is the entrepreneurial spirit, I guess, for you personally, you hustled at an early age and you had a sense of urgency and, you, and there was also a necessity there. So you had a strong work ethic, but then also how you've seen that play out through others somebody can have a vision, they can see something, they can see the potential way before someone else can or others can see it. And that person oftentimes can struggle working with others for lots of different reasons. But then there's somebody like yourself who can come in and see the potential, but then understand how to execute all the X's and O's to get it to where it needs to be, to get something that's already established and to get it at a high level of potential. And, and that's kind of the specialty that you felt that you saw.
1: Yeah, that's, that, that's right, Sam. That would be, that, I think that's a great way to explain it.
0: So I've yet to meet somebody that said that they had a passion for accounting. And so before we get into kind of a lot of the things that we've already referenced in the conversation, I'm just curious, what is it about accounting that you loved to where you would even say when you were CFO of a company at one time before moving to Memphis, you wanted to? Go back to being a CPA because you just realized that you had a passion for accounting what was it about accounting that you loved early on in your career
1: well I was in public accounting and uh and i didn't not in what you call a corporate i wasn't a corporate accountant or anything like that and so i had we had a lot of different clients that we worked with and they were in different kind of businesses uh one had a chain of newspapers one had a chain of motels a couple of them were in construction business I did a lot of uh, the tax work for doctors first of all the tax was my favorite part of accounting and uh, i really enjoyed taxes uh estate planning you know help people see how to plan their estates but i uh, i learned so much from watching my clients buy businesses and sell businesses and and uh and i got to be involved in that so i really done i don't know that i really thought of myself so much as an accountant as I did really taking accounting tools that I learned and use them to buy and sell businesses. And, uh, I know that the experience I gained from working with my clients helped me tremendously, you know, and they would do things that I would have done different. And I'd watch that and I learned, learned, you know, things that I would do different. That's why when I came over, I had a chance of doing it my way. And, uh, Unfortunately, uh, thankfully, it was it worked. That's one thing people have to do is they have to do things the way they do them. Some people try to try to copy somebody else's style, and it just doesn't work. You know, they just got to be themselves and do it do it do it their way. But going back to the accounting part of it, though, I think the accounting part. Uh, I'm not sure I could have done what I did if I hadn't been had the accounting experience i think uh accounting is a great background for anybody who wants to be in business or do anything like that it's, uh is to have the experience of uh of understanding how to read a balance sheet and income statement how to watch your expenses and uh how to grow your revenue and so i know accountants get a bum rap sometimes for being called bing counters and uh, <laughs> a lot of other terms but uh and now you're not supposed to have a personality and, uh, but I really never thought of myself so much that way as a boring accountant with a son with a visor over my my head, you know, but at the same time, if I had to do it over again, as far as my education, I would not hesitate about majoring in accounting, mm-hmm. you know, it just fit for me. But again, I didn't like to do the auditing. I didn't like to write up work. What my favorite part was taxes. I really enjoyed taxes. And again, when I came to Memphis, uh, my background, working with my clients, and the experience I had was tremendous.
0: Yes, sir. And I guess, as you're describing it, is it the fact that you knew how to break something down that seemed very complicated, or very large, maybe to someone else, and you knew how to get very granular in understanding what, you know, what were the few things that were driving most of the outcomes, and so you knew how to Kind of dissect that very quickly down to almost to a unit standpoint and then you could create solutions off of that very quickly where maybe other people didn't even know where to look i mean could you describe it that way is that what interests you like putting a puzzle together
1: well yeah i think that's a great way to describe it and uh because what i would do when i would look at a dealership in trouble that we were thinking about buying uh, I would look and see what their revenues were. There's In there, a car dealership, there's about four or five <clears throat> places you can make money. One is the uh, new car sales, used car sales, parts department, service department, and body shop. And what I would do if I were looking at a car dealership, I was thinking about buying that was in trouble, having problems. I would look and see what their sales were and what, and what their service sales were, what their parts sales were, new cars, used cars. And uh, and then I I could take what I thought were going to be the expenses to run in each one of those departments, and I would look and see if they had the revenue there. I I could do the expense part, so that that was that was really fairly easy for me. You know, if you give me the revenue, uh, I'll get the expenses right. And that was the way that uh, that we would do it. And what happened? to So many successful car dealers that sold a lot of cars. They just couldn't manage the money, and uh, they they would, uh, you know, they just they were just mad, bad, bad money managers.
0: And so you could see that very quickly. I'm curious. One last question, kind of while we're on this point of all the different transactions, all the different acquisitions, or all the different sales or closures for all the clients that you worked with in reference, was there top two to three themes or things that you saw over and over again? that you noticed early on to where if you got those right there was a higher probability in really being successful from a business standpoint with what you saw with your
1: clients well this the answer to that might surprise you i think uh one of the things that i learned and looking back more than at the time maybe was the number of clients i had that were very successful in their business for a while Started taking shortcuts in uh, in their personal life, in their business life, and uh, I have often thought that if they would had an accountability partner, somebody that would have helped them when they saw them slipping, and uh, that they would have maybe not done so bad in their business. I had clients that would do real well, and uh, then all of a sudden they just started taking shortcuts, start doing things that uh, were not were not wise and uh, and their business started struggling and they uh and and, and, and and in two or three cases they just they they lost their business because of it
0: they lost focus
1: they, they lost focus but i guess really even more than that their moral values just slipped
0: are you talking about like an affair or
1: yeah right
0: or an embezzlement Maybe. or something
1: Maybe they started going out of town and watching things on TV they shouldn't. Maybe they were going to the bar, you know, started drinking where they didn't have a drinking problem before. Uh, Maybe they were having some uh, extramarital relationships, you know, but just slipped, you know. And uh, I've often wondered, because I I know in Covey's book, uh, it talks about it. But I've often wondered if those people had had an accountability partner, somebody that would be straight with them and would tell them, you know, that you better watch it, you're on dangerous ground. I think it could have saved, maybe saved their business, you know, and saved their marriage and saved their life. So that would probably be one of the things I learned from my clients. The other, I guess, another thing maybe I I, I learned from them was uh, just the way they uh, ran their business, and they all would be a little bit different, but I could kind of take the combination of all those and put it together about the way that I would do it if it were me and so I learned a lot I learned a lot that way by picking and choosing the better the better parts when I first got in the car business I had never run a car dealership and so I had so much to learn I had to pick people and uh the first uh I guess year or two I ended up replacing nine managers of the different businesses that we had and what i would do would be to go to somewhere like Atlanta and there were like five Lincoln Mercury dealerships there i would get a taxi and and hire him out for the day and let him take me around to all five dealerships and i would meet with the owner or the manager and uh, and get them to help me you know give me some tips about running a dealership so i learned that way and uh, cuz i used to recommend to my clients they do that if they were had a business in florence and uh, Uh, go to Memphis and find the one that did it the best way and talk to them and ask them what their secret of success was. And uh, and that's a little bit of what I did in the uh, car business.
0: I read a quote, something to the standpoint of that you knew how to put the heart into a business or something about the heart, the energy of the business and performance. And obviously you're a CPA, you're a public accountant and you've talked about Loving digging in on the numbers, love understanding things and what makes them really tick and how to how to get things where they need to go. I've also read a quote that, you know, you you knew how to get the most out of somebody. Uh, talk about your genuine interest in people, all of these things about connecting with human beings and building relationships. So I'm curious. What's your standpoint, or what's your view on connecting with humans—the heartbeat of a company—inside of something? When you're a trained accountant,
1: uh, you know one of the things that I wanted to do when I came in the company, especially after the first year or two. The first year or two, I was just trying to survive, but we were able to get out of our bankruptcy, and we we're able to get our debt down to a manageable amount. And uh, but then I wanted to to build relationships with our with our people and uh that's when I discovered the cover book, and what we did is we we wrote a mission statement, and uh, it's very short five lines and uh you might remember maybe reading it when you were reading the book but uh it was uh it was it was very short, just talking about taking care of our customers, talking about taking care of our employees and uh and also uh being involved in the community and helping the community and uh so, uh, I wanted to take our people through some kind of a, of a book or some kind of a course or something that would help them come closer together, you know, just to build the relationships. So, we wrote our mission statement. Our board, we had a little a board and we wrote our mission statement, and we spent about six months taking all of our people through it. And um, then uh, I, we had an attorney that worked in our company, an in house attorney. And she was uh, our facilitator and she went out to Utah where uh, Covey lived and went to a school. And she came back and started taking all of our people through the Seven Habits book. And what I, what my thought was, if we could help our employees learn how to have better relationships with their family, the people they work with, that it would uh, help their whole life and they'd be better employees and they'd do a better job at our dealership. And, uh, and I think that was the case, you know, I think, uh, you know, we just like you said earlier, we didn't, we didn't open on Sunday. And if you read our mission statement, there was one thing that was not even mentioned on our mission statement. And that was uh, money, uh, income. And, uh, and our philosophy was my philosophy, and I think it came our company philosophy was, if we did all the other things, right, the income would come, the finances would come automatically if we did other things right. And that proved to be true for us. We were successful financially. And I think our our people grew. And I think he made them feel better about themselves and about their family. So, you know, I am a believer, Christian, and and I know that God from the very beginning owned all these companies and I was just a steward of them. And uh, I tried to be careful about with our people and not you know force anything on them and the thing i liked about the cubby book was it had those principles in it but it, they didn't just knock you down you know and uh we also we had a chaplain that uh worked for our company he was just a real plain guy a former pastor and uh he could talk to our people better than i could i didn't want them to start running when they saw me coming <laughs> that i was going to talk to them about about spiritual things But they loved this guy, they called him Brother Paul. And uh, when somebody was sick in the hospital, he'd go visit them, he'd keep me up to date. Uh, He married some of our employees, he he did some funerals, and he just kind of kept up with when they had problems, you know, and tried to help them through it. So I think one of the people that did one of the uh, the quotes for me, they, they mentioned the word, maybe put a heart into the company, you know. And I think that's what, you know, I, I wanted to do. I wanted to have a good testimony in our community and, uh, and, uh, and, to, and, and to help our people.
0: So I guess you're saying for the first couple of years, it was survival. And then after, once things got settled, that's where you started to try to think of ways how to pour into your people to where they were as engaged as much as possible. And that's the methods and how you did it. Right. It kind of helped get more out of people, but it also helped them in their own personal lives with their families. And as a result, they, were, they might've been more committed to the overall objectives of the company, but you also felt like you were holistically helping each person that was a part of any of the dealerships or companies that you owned.
1: Yes, sir. That's right.
0: So you were a public accountant and at 37, you were asked by a large lender, several lenders to come to Memphis because Schilling Enterprises had a thousand employees, $100 million in revenue. I just listed off the companies earlier. And I read that you, you talked about you were losing a few million dollars at least a year. You also owed several million dollars to banks. And I saw even that y'all had over a million dollars in back payroll taxes. So it sounds that banks, lenders were obviously desperate because it was going to be a Chapter 7 bankruptcy on the whole thing, it sounds like, and they thought of you or they wanted you because of, of your work with that company, I guess, and their belief in you. So you just take, make this crazy career change, move to Memphis to take over this whole organization, Shilling Enterprises, that's on the verge of going Chapter 7 on everything, and you just have to start jumping into the chaos. I mean, is that an accurate way to frame it?
1: Very accurate. Very accurate.
0: What do you think? I'm just curious, while being respectful of Mr. Schilling, and as much as you can share, and if you don't want to share anything, we'll edit this out. But what do you think his strengths were? And what do you think his weaknesses were that maybe got it to that situation that you had to come in? And I know that we all have strengths and weaknesses, but everybody thinks it's so attractive to all these employees and all these companies. But obviously, what is reality oftentimes in business? Is different than what people may think but can you speak to any of that about what set it up for it to be in the situation that you had to come in on
1: right well first of all uh, i really never met mr shilling and uh, he started a company in 1929 with the truck trucking company and he died in 1970 and uh, and when he died his accountant long-time accountant took over running the companies and so that's who I started working with. I worked with the companies as an outside accountant from 19, uh, see, about 1973 to 1980 when I came over and went to work full-time. But it was the it was his accountant that really was not a good manager and really caused probably most of the financial problems. And uh Mr. Schilling, I think, had even told his wife that uh, when he died to sell the companies. And she didn't listen to him and uh and so the the accountant for the company just was not doing a good job. you know there's no other way to put it and uh that's where the banks stepped in and uh and told her she was going to have to get somebody else to help her. She did not have any children, and uh she was not a, a uh, financial person, but she was a very wise lady she was about 15 fifteen twenty years older than I was and uh she uh, recognized the problem uh, the banks explained it to her. And, uh, and she made me a a, a nice offer to come over to buy part of the company. If I would, actually, when I first came, I really came as a part time person, I was not, I was just going to do it part time. And that's neat too, Sam. the way God worked. Uh, And I I didn't see it until I looked back. But if he had had me to, uh, I mean, if I had had to make a decision on the front end, come to memphis i'm not sure i would have come but i did in such a way that i was going to come and 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 work for a few months and i was uh working in florence taxation just started in january and i was working sunday through thursday in memphis and i would go back to florence and i was working friday through sunday in uh in florence and so my my clients in florence were saying when are you going to get through and come back to florence all the time And in Memphis, the people were saying, when are you going to move your family to Memphis? And this was all in a couple of months period. And so finally, I realized pretty quick that I couldn't do both. And I was going to have to choose. And so uh, I had a 15-year-old daughter. And the last thing she wanted to do was to move out of her school. And uh, so I talked to both of them, my wife and my daughter, about it. And... uh, my wife said, I don't want to move to Memphis. And I said, Well, when we got married, you told me you'd go anywhere I wanted you to go. And she said, Yeah, that was 17 years ago. <laughs> and so, but long story short, they did come. And uh, and I think after a while they were glad they did. But that was painful. But the point of all that was, if I had, had to make the decision on the front end, I don't think I would have probably come. I'm not sure. But I think God wanted me to do it and I think this was part of his will. And I think that's the reason that he let me do it gradually rather than all of a sudden, you know. Uh, but I really do feel like I got called to Memphis to do this. And I felt like God had been preparing me for it for all my business career. And that uh and that just like a preacher gets called to a church, I felt like I was called to Memphis to uh to run these companies. And never have changed my mind about that since, since then.
0: Yes, sir. So you never once, even when it was crazy and chaotic those first couple of years, did you ever once think that you might have made the wrong
1: decision? No, I really didn't, I don't think. Uh, for one thing, I didn't have time, hardly, to think about it. <laughs> but, and also, uh, Ms. Schilling was very uh, nice to help me early on by selling me part of the company and financing it for me. I didn't have any money. And uh, she was very wise to do that though, because it's like she told me when she sold me part of the company. She said, Harry, everybody else can leave, but you can't leave. You gotta stay because you own part of it. <laughs> and that was very wise on her part, you know, to be unselfish enough to realize I'm be better off owning part of it than I would be owning all of it and going out of business.
0: Put skin in the game and having humility, trying to find right. the right person. And that where the incentives are aligned, it played off better for her than what it would have been.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, we filed our chapter 11 reorganization on her birthday. So the lawyers explained it to her, you know, and it was, it was pretty, uh, I was interesting how you picked up on the chapter seven and the 11, how you know the difference. That's
0: the crit. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. So you come in and I'm just curious, what do you think that time before? And I don't know the situation or the conditions of those companies prior, but what do you think happened? Is it losing sight of the customer? Is it losing connection to the people in the organization? Is it losing standards and discipline? Is it an accountant if he doesn't understand how to make things work and how to make the customer happy, how to have urgency throughout the organization? I'm just curious, what do you think led? to the situation where you own several million dollars to lenders, to the IRS, you know, you're losing several million dollars a year. I don't know the specific financials, but what do you think was lost sight of to get it to that point prior to you getting there?
1: Well, I think think mainly I would just sum it up as bad management, you know, just uh, bad management. And uh, they had a bad situation or we had a bad situation with Ford Motor Company, we—that was our biggest. Half of our employees worked for for, for the uh, for the automobile carrier. I mean, for, for well, for the carrier that that hauled cars for Ford, and uh, they would um, they would pretty much set the rates for what they would pay you, and you could go back to them each year and try to get an increase, or you could go to the Interstate Commerce Commission (ICC). And and get in and get try to get a raise, but that was a no-no. It was with Ford because if you went around them to the I C C to get a raise, they looked at that real bad, and so uh, the company was just losing money. And 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 the man that was running it just just he just didn't do the things that needed to be done to uh, you know to, as they say, stop the bleeding. You know.
0: What does bad management look like? And then alternatively, what does good management look like? I feel a little embarrassed to ask that question, but I'm just curious, the basics. What do you see? How do you see that?
1: Well, I think, of course, I think good management is, uh, is, is, is doing the right things at the right time and recognizing the problems if you have it. And uh, your revenues are more than your expenses. You know, it's, it kind of gets down to a household level. That's why our federal government some of this stuff we spend more than we than we take in, but it's really a it's really a simple thing of you know spending less than you take in and having a profit. Bad management is the opposite. You know, is you just don't have a handle on your expenses, and you've got to you've got to cut somewhere, or you got to you got to go out of business.
0: Can you describe a little bit? you know i read obviously there was it almost seemed like there was multiple times where yeah, i guess you came in and filed you know early on to restructure and then i read that in 1980 a lender called everything maybe that was about to force a chapter 7 liquidation obviously you reference a wild couple years but can you can you maybe come in what have you learned when you come into a situation and like i know you bought up distressed saddle company in Texas, and I know you sold your share of the partnership years later, but you obviously have experience coming into distressed situations. When you come in and people are probably scared, uncomfortable, fearful, stressed out, or it's very chaotic, what are you thinking about? What are you prioritizing? And how can you get detached to potentially see the opportunity, I guess? To some degree, selectively choose that situation to walk into and to try to rectify.
1: well, in the case of the saddle company, uh, that was a very interesting experience. My neighbor and a fellow that I went to church with had a little saddle company uh, in Memphis, and uh, he asked me uh, we, we were on a mission committee at our church, and we'd go on trips together and he'd asked me to look at his statements and go over the numbers with him, and I did. And uh, he shared with me about this. The largest saddle company in the United States was by, was uh, going bankrupt. And it was uh, out in a little town called Yokum, Texas. And uh, so he was telling me about it. And I said, well, what do you think you want to you want to look at maybe talking to the bank? But the bank had sent their person in and they had kind of taken over the company and um, he said, "Well, they won't talk to me because I have a seller company." And I said, "Well, maybe they'll talk to me. I don't have a seller company." <laughs> and uh, so I uh, I called him up and uh, the banker, and they arranged for us to go out and look at the look at the company. Now, the biggest seller company in the United States is not all that big. <laughs> <laughs> they they were they were probably doing uh, I guess maybe ten or twelve million dollars a year, something like that, and. Uh, but again, they they had borrowed a lot of money from the Bank of New York. And uh, no, the Bank of New York's address is number one Wall Street. <laughs> and uh, so we, uh, we, we went first, we went to Texas and looked at the company and looked at the books. And uh, they had a lot of receivables and they had a lot of inventory and they had a lot of debt. And the secret for us on that was to buy it right. And so we... Uh, we went to New York and met with the bankers and, uh, and we just made a real good deal on the front end. You know, we bought the receivables, you know, for just pennies on a dollar, bought the inventory the same way. And so we had a couple million dollars that we could lose while we were getting the company turned around. So we had that much to kind of work with. And it took almost all of it, but we did, and we got it turned around and it did it's, it's done real well. And uh, it was so funny. My partner uh, had never been in New York. <laughs> and so to go to, to the Bank of New York at number one, Wall Street was quite an experience for him. Yeah. And it, it was he was he was a real cool guy. He still is. He's my neighbor still. And I sold it to him about six years later. and He's doing real well with it. And mm-hmm. uh, which I'm thankful that he is. But um, we were on about the 16th floor of the Bank of New York building. And it overlooked 911 uh, oh, towers. Yeah, 911 towers. We, we overlooked where they were. And so they had already we had already asked them if we could go up and look, you know, from the bank. And uh, they said yes. But anyway, making a long story short, we were negotiating with them and uh, our negotiations, uh, kind of started going south. And uh, so my partner looked at him and said, Well, gosh, Ed, that was the guy's name. He said, does that mean we don't get to see 9-11? You know, <laughs> and that kind of broke everything up. And we went up and looked at it and, uh, uh, and went on from there. But anyway, going back, I got off the subject there. But going back, all of those businesses that we bought, which we bought several, uh, it's the way you buy them, that where you make your money and where you're profitable, is buying them, you know, with a good price. And that's what happened to the saddle company. You know, we just bought it right.
0: In most situations, do you feel that if you see a company and you understand the financials and you know how you're going to get it to where it needs to go? Are you just confident that there's at least enough people in the organization or there's outside talent to solve any problem once you get the finances and once you get the management right?
1: Yes, I think it will if it has the potential you know if the if the business has the potential to to get to sales you know where you need them. Then yes, I think so. I think it's people. It's people and money.
0: Yes, sir. You seem very matter of fact, very data driven, very number driven. But you also seem very kind and interested in who you're talking to. I mean, even when I asked you if I could invite you on this podcast, you asked me more questions about my life or my wife or my family than really any person I'd met doing these interviews and. A lot of people I can think of for the first time, but when you have to come in and make hard decisions or when you have to lay people off or when you, like I saw after you clarified things with shilling and doubled down on the automobile industry, I saw that you, throughout your time, it, I saw that you purchased seven dealerships, you sold seven, you closed one, and maybe you opened two. And obviously there's one in there that I'm probably missing to make it flat even to make it balanced. But there's no question about it. You've talked about making hard decisions. Does that ever weigh on you heavy, personally, when you've got to make decisions about people, but you're also, it sounds like a very clear thinker from a business, operational, from a number standpoint? And how, how have you learned how to do that throughout your lifetime?
1: Well, one, one, one thing is I, I don't get real sentimental about businesses and uh, owning a business in particular. So it doesn't bother me to to sell one if I need to. One of the things that I probably got more satisfaction out of than almost anything was selling farms because I wanted it to be uh, something that stood for good things. And we wanted to have a place where people could work and play and live and worship. And uh, and we were able to do that. And then going back to a business, we would not sell a business unless we just felt like it didn't have the potential uh, to do well over over a longer period of time or that we could or that we could turn it around or do do better with it. And in those cases, we felt like with the employees, if we had them working in a place that didn't have a good future, that's not doing them a favor and that if they were good at their job, they'd be able to go out and find another job. And so you know, some people kind of grow up in a binge, you know, and they get real sentimental about it. And they they don't, they don't make the hard decisions and they end up going broke, you know. And so I've always kind of felt like that I was not doing the employees a favor if I was keeping them with a job at a place that didn't have a good future. It would be a whole lot better to go ahead and pull the plug and make that decision to sell it or maybe in some cases close it and let them go on and be about what their next job was going to be. So I care about the people, but I'd really, as far as owning a particular dealership in a particular location, that didn't bother me, you know? And, you know, I'm really thankful for this. I've really never sold anything that I wish I hadn't sold. And uh, that's, that's a good feeling.
0: It's really interesting because I know of situations in my own life, and I know of other people where... I mean, personally, I've, I feel like there's been times where I've made decisions too quick. And then I've also made decisions, and I'm really glad I made those decisions, even though they were uncomfortable. But I also know of people that put their head in the sand and then it created significant consequences, you know, months right. or years down the road. And so I think personally, when I saw that early on, I almost probably defaulted to being too aggressive too soon. But you just hear of people that are scared. I guess to go back to your point earlier, bad management, which I know that can manifest itself in multiple ways and not just the way that I'm saying it, because I can, there's things I wish I would have made a different decision on, but bad management, part of it's not making those tough calls soon enough. And then you put yourself in a maybe the way that you described it, where if it wasn't just such a one in a million result or effort, or turn around, then you kind of get past the point of making it work. And so to me, it sounds like what you're saying. You just try to be very objective. You also try to care about people and develop where you can, but you also try to be a realist and, and look at the potential outcome and then make those decisions and then move on.
1: That's, that, I couldn't have said it better. You're exactly right. And, you know, I think one thing that uh, a lot of people have a hard time is they will look at something and analyze it and think about it, but they can't ever get to the place of, of pulling the trigger, you know, and making a decision. And that's what you've got to be able to do, you know, and well, in life, you have got to be able to make, make decisions. And uh, some people have a real, real hard time ever doing that. They'll analyze it to death, you know, but they won't make a decision.
0: Yes, sir. Curious in your book, there's a very pivotal kind of a climactic moment when you talk about going to Michigan. It's Dearborn, Michigan, right? That's Ford's corporate right. Right. And, you, and they had canceled a contract. Y'all had the dealer transport. So y'all are moving automobiles around the country. Sound like they had abruptly canceled a contract and then, which sounded like a very confident move on your part to then close a facility down in Kentucky. How stressful was that time? And what exactly did that look like to come in and for you to go up to Ford and negotiate and 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 then close that facility in Kentucky to try to protect yourself and protect your company to to keep your company in business.
1: Yeah, that was that was a very stressful time. You know, one of the things that I had going for me, I had a lot of good things going for me uh, except money. <laughs> <laughs> but uh one of the things I had going for me was I was not part of the problem that got the company where it was. And I was part of the solution to get it out. So I had a great relationship with the bankers and uh, you know, the people that we owed money to, because they knew that it wasn't my doing, you know, and that the former manager was gone, you know, the CEO. And so I was there. And so we were working together as a team because we owed them a lot of money. And that was the best chance they had of maybe getting that back. And uh but it was very stressful and uh when I went to uh, Detroit, I tell you though I had I had some really interesting experiences when I went to Detroit, first of all, on a Thursday when they called me to come to Detroit and come by myself. I knew something wasn't good, and sure enough, that's when they told me they were going to take our business away from us. so I came back to Memphis, met with the bankers and uh and so they encouraged me to go back up. so I went back to Detroit on Sunday and uh uh, and I started going up the line. I went to the people that had told us they were going to take our business away. And they wouldn't change their mind. I went to their boss, and they wouldn't change their mind. I went to their boss, and they wouldn't change their mind. And I got up to uh, the executive vice president, a man named Harold Polling, And we, I slipped in kind of the back door because there's all kinds of security. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was doing it so much. But anyway, I got into his secretary. And I told her what was going on and asked her if she would get me a meeting with her her boss. And she did. And I met the next day at 1.30 with uh, the executive vice president, who later became chairman of Ford Motor Company. Wow. And I ended up having a great relationship with. But anyway, uh, so I met with him and a couple of other people. And they listened very intently for about 30 minutes and told me they'd get back with me. And they told me they they backed their people, you know, and stood by their decision. But uh, this guy Harold Polling and I were—I would almost call it friends—for the next uh, several years until he retired. And then the, his secretary every year I would send her popcorn, a can of popcorn, <laughs> and uh, I called her the bit Samaritan because she got me that meeting with uh, with Harold Polling. But. Um, Yes, it was very stressful, and uh, you know that during that same that same year, it was December. You mentioned a little bit earlier about one of the banks. They uh, called me in and told me that um, if we didn't get this thing settled by uh, the end of the year, uh, or maybe end of January, that they were going to uh, force us into a uh, Chapter Seven. And uh, I remember going out into the Alley, and just crying. I mean, I was just, I was just so, you know, upset, you know. And so I went over to the attorney's office, and he had a good relationship with the bank. And so he told me, he said "It's going to be all right here. It's going to be all right. We, we'll work it out." So he he talked to the people at the bank, and sure enough, I think as much as anything, they were threatening me and scaring me, and all of it worked. It was threatening and scaring. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you know, when somebody tells you they're gonna close in and you know close you down in effect but um that was a answer your question though very stressful time I I, you know I think this happens sometimes to people when they go through something like that they don't get sick till it's over but uh, I had already had a little history of bleeding ulcers I'd had a couple of times and so it was a month or two after we got everything settled that I had another bleeding ulcer. <laughs> but uh, stressful is a good word.
0: How did you learn during that season? There's so many, I'm sure, thoughts you had, but when you come into a situation, what to prioritize and how to – because I'm sure if somebody didn't have a sense of discipline or wisdom or patience, all the issues, that the dynamics inside the organization that you're trying to salvage, and then all the external – Debt payments, cash flow fears, all those things. Is there anything that you can speak to that you are able to just almost compartmentalize or almost able to focus on one step at a time, where you are able to actually start whittling away at it, versus just get so overwhelmed about how dire the circumstances were.
1: Well, I I had my list and uh and 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 I lived by. Uh, this was not not good planning for a a business that's that's doing well but i took it a day at a time and i said what do i have to do today to stay in business and so that would be what i would focus on that day and the next day same thing and then marking them off my list but i lived by the day you know our company lived by the day and of course eventually as we started getting things settled you know then we could start planning and that's when Later, we got into the Covey book, you know, and started making, you know, long-term plans, getting you know, a mission statement, doing those things. But for the first several months, it was just what did it take to make it through another day?
0: Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time now more than ever? Traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with non-stop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also sponsored by My Story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come? What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice? This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. Go to mystorytold.org. To learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show. I'm just curious what made you, when you sold off the HVAC distributorship, you sold off industrial power company. I'm not sure what happened to the dealer transport company, but you doubled down on auto dealerships. And I counted 17 total transactions in your book. And again, I might be off one or two, but what made you double down on auto dealerships after you're able to get things squared away from a selling or closure or liquidation standpoint on some of these other companies?
1: Well, I think uh, I think the opportunity just kind of presented itself. Plus, uh, we were to the place in in where most of our business was automobile dealerships, and then I I made uh, contacts, you know, with with other car dealers and. Uh, so it was just kind of a natural for us to concentrate on growing by, by buying other car dealerships. And what I do is I would, I would spot a dealership that looked like it was struggling, you know, and would go by and meet the person that owned it and uh, just have a casual talk with them. But somewhere in a conversation basically would say, Hey, I know you're probably not interested in selling your dealership, but if you ever have an interest, I hope you'll call me, you know, and most people, when they want to sell a business like that, they don't want it to be public. They want it to be as quiet as it can be. It was amazing how many of them called me like that, you know, to talk to me about buying their dealership. And it was months later, you know, it was you just planted a seed, and uh, and then months later it would come along. And usually, dealership when they would get in trouble, it would be around uh, November, December, around the end of the year. But anyway, that that that's why we focused on. Car dealerships was that's what we really ended up having more of and also knew more about. Yes, sir.
0: Did you get bored after you were able to get through that season and save the company?
1: No, I never did have time to get bored. I, uh, it was, we were, we were always trying to kind of, I think, do something better. And I learned to go to the car auctions and buy cars some and did some things and learned a little bit more about car dealerships. And my son-in-law was with me, uh, uh, Rex Jones, and that was a real blessing. And uh, my daughter actually worked with us for a little bit early on. She was a, a, a trainer, trained our salespeople, and she sold, she sold cars for a little while. But uh, no, I I I, uh, I never got bored. You know, I can't say that I always loved the car business. You know, it was it was where where we were, and it was it, that's where we were. And I uh, see, I would go by the dealership every Saturday, go by at nights. And because uh, our, our hours were like seven in the morning to eight at night. And of uh, course, closed on Sunday, we close at six on Saturday. But I felt like that uh, our guys didn't want to work on Saturday either. So I felt like I had to go by there, and visit with them and say hello to them. And so after a few years, when I gave that responsibility to uh, my son-in-law, I told him, I said, you got to be the role model now. You're the Saturday man. You're the night man. You're the early morning man, and uh, that's very important. And as you get older, you know, people don't expect as much from you, you know. So it was a, it was really good for me when I could back off a little bit and not have to spend so much time there. Yes,
0: sir. There's a guest that I had on this podcast a couple months ago, and I mean, they they really just Take outside investment and acquire companies. And they try to buy companies that have good models, run well, good management teams. And then they try to add value to those companies through talent or technology or things, but they try to be kind of hands off as much as possible. But then you have other corporations or holding companies, like with what you took on, where it sounds like very involved and lots of different types of industries. Most times do you see that working out poorly, for example, with g e all the trouble that they've gotten into and all the liquidation that they've had to do with restructuring, everything from you know turbines to finance and everything in between? I mean, do you just see that being a bad move most of the time, or do you ever see it done well?
1: well, i think I think it's better to focus on uh, on things that you know something about, and also I think Uh, it's awfully important to uh, to be on top of what's going on Uh, you can delegate you know but you need to you need to know enough about being able to to check daily, weekly, monthly you know how the businesses are doing and uh, because you don't want to get any surprises and in the case of car dealerships there's so many ways to lose money in a car dealership and uh, so you know some people are are good about delegating that responsibility about running a company and pretty well leaving them alone. But I would say the vast majority of the time, the ones that do the best are the ones that stay on top of their business and, and watch it closely. And uh, you now, some of what you're talking about would be on a bigger scale to where if they're buying a big business, maybe one that's maybe doing 20, $25 million a year, depending on what it is, but maybe they're wanting to, to increase it. They see the potential to double it, and they've got good management. Then uh, they'll buy them and sell them maybe two or three years later and double their money, you know. And uh, I think certainly they do that. But those people probably have a skill in, 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 in buying a business that way, in managing it that way, whereas some other people like me would be better. By buying a business and staying more on top of it, and uh, and watching you know watching it closer, so I think they both will work. And then, of course, the bigger ones that you're talking about, they're generally working with somebody else's money. A lot of times, they you know they raise capital and go out and buy businesses. But uh, I think they both work. I think both ways work. I think it's again, it's just kind of the management style that. Uh, company has or, uh, or holding company. I think I almost think of some that have done it both ways, you know, and been successful. I will say this, probably the ones that that grow bigger and do bigger are probably the ones that are, are, are buying companies and, uh, um, and making sure they've got good, strong management and making sure they have plenty of capital to work with and then trying to grow them and make them, uh, more valuable and sell them and make a big big profit on them. It sounds like that was company you were interviewed and was doing that that yeah. way.
0: Yes, sir. And they hold them, but they try to invest in them or acquire them or do joint ventures if somebody's going to take some chips off the table. But to find them where they're already run well and it's a long term play. Right. Curious you. You talked about or I read a quote of yours. Where you said have a passion for your work where there's something interesting about every person you meet and every job you do find a job you can build a good professional foundation and don't focus on the money does that sound right
1: well the focus when i say don't focus on the money i i, I really say it by doing yes by doing the other things right you know if if there's five or six things, in other words, if you take care of your customer, take care of your people, watch the details, keep up with, you know, uh, everything like you need to, the profits will come. But when you can't just forget money, you know, and you can't forget profits. You know, you've got to be conscious. That's really the way you keep score. You know, in a football game, you keep score by who scores most points. In a, in a in our case, in a car dealership, we kept score by how much money we made. You know. And that's the way our people got paid. Most all of our people were on commission. Our general manager, he got paid based on how much the dealership made. Our department's managers got paid on how much their departments made. Salesmen got paid on how many cars they sold. And so definitely, you know, money was an important part of it. But it was just not something that we focused on outwardly to our uh, in our mission statement.
0: Yes, sir. When you'd walk the floor or when you'd walk your business and you could imagine you can read people. Well, I know you can read people, but you see into somebody's eyes and you can see if somebody's not necessarily clicking that day or they're kind of dragging or you might or they might might not have a a giddy up to their step. How did you kind of approach each day in a way where you were trying to kind of pump some life into people where it's natural? in a society where a lot of people just kind of want to go eight to five and get the check how did you kind of push the tempo to a certain degree to really try to motivate people day in day out especially in a in a society or in an environment where a lot of times people are just kind of dragging or it can be the default a lot of the times
1: well i think i think a real short answer to that would be people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care and uh, i think you know my goal was to uh, one of my goals was to let people know that uh, that we did care for them you know and that we knew that you know in a car dealership uh you got about we have about 60 employees in each dealership and um you know we the the success of that dealership depended pretty much on the general manager and so you know a lot of my job was to keep the general manager you know, going keep him pumped up, keep him excited, and then it was his job to do the same thing with people that uh, that worked under him. We didn't uh, we didn't have the most flashiest managers, but we had people that cared. And I think again, it's that that saying I've, I've, I'm sure I probably learned it at church. I don't know, but people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And if people know you care about them, and you sincerely. Uh, you know, we had we had uh, at Shilling Farms for several years. Once a year, we had a picnic on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, and uh, we would invite all of our dealership employees and their families. We'd have several hundred people out there. We brought in these big things they bounce on, you know, and and uh, and we had of course a lot of food and uh, hay rides. And uh, it was just a big family affair. Like Little Rock, we had a dude shooting Little Rock, they'd come over in the bus. And we had one in, down in Alabama and they'd come over in the bus. And they would have softball games with each other, competition. And uh but we but we did things like that. And we had a little banquet uh each year for our employees. And we had things like employee of the year, you know, for each place, and a lot of recognition. And uh you know, those things just work. And, you know, and you can't do it for a selfish reason in mind. I mean, you can't you can't just say, well, I'm going to do this because if I do this, we'll sell more cars and we'll make more money. You know, you really are just trying to build an atmosphere with your people to let them know that you do care about them. And, you know, it's even with our management team. You know, I, I always worked under the idea that... Uh, we're a team and we're going to make decisions together and hopefully we're going to all agree. And if we don't agree, then we're going to try to keep talking about it until we can at some point you have to make a decision. And, and there were times when I'd have to make a decision, but I also gave them the freedom to come back to me to talk about it again. But, uh, we were just real big on including our, all of our people, you know, and, and things that we used to read and study was that that was real high on the list of employees when they, they felt like they were included and were part of the decision-making. And at the same time, you've got to have people that are in authority and, you know, they've got to control them. So there's a balance. Have, have
0: things changed that much when you think back over the last 41 years or so? And if you look ahead to the next 15 or 20 just where you think the world will be. Do you think the same principles that gave you success and making sure people know you cared, what it was then, what it was like, you know, 10, 15 years after and where it is now and where it will be, has it
1: changed that much? I would like to think that it wouldn't be a whole lot different. You know, that uh, we still, I I think I'd do it the same way I did it back then. I think I would try to have the same attitude with my employees. I think, uh, you know, and people are more quicker to make changes today, probably. But, uh, but you know, I guess all generations have always said, well, this generation is uh, different from the prior generation. You know, I, I know when I was younger, you know, I would say that people would say that. But um, I, you know, I, I, I've got to look at it as two ways. One is the country and the politicians and where they're going. And another one is trying to run a business, you know and uh because if i was if i was a politician i'd be wanting to run the government like i run a business and that certainly did not happen yes sir does that make sense
0: yes sir it does and i and i hear you loud and clear and i guess what i'm hearing you say and i, and I, I would guess it still stands just as true today when people know you really care about them and you're trying to let them know personally, that you're interested in their well-being, but you also have high expectations. And you, it's, a, it's an environment, it's a system that holds people accountable, wants to take care of the customer and, and perform well. That's what people need at the end of the day. And that's the difference between good management and bad management. And then obviously, we're also talking about some things from how the country's run as a whole. And, and you're saying good management would be there would be a lot of similarities to how the politicians behave or how they govern and or how they lead and how the countries run and that concerns you I guess because you feel like we're getting away from those principles.
1: Uh, yeah, I sure do. I I think if we could run our country like we could run a, a business, good, uh, it would be a huge difference. Yes, sir. What
0: what's the reason that you chose to sell your dealerships versus hold them and maybe try to pass them on to the next generation?
1: You know, that's a great question, Sam. I'm not sure that I ever really loved the car business. I'm being real uh, honest with you now. Yes, sir. I'm not sure I ever loved the car business. I enjoyed the car business. I enjoyed the people. And I met a lot of interesting people, met a lot of people in Detroit and and, uh, traveling around different places. But uh, I kind of learned somewhere along the line that there's a time to sell and and you have opportunities to uh, to sell and to get out of your business. I, I've seen people with car dealerships do real well. And then the economy go bad and things go bad and they they would end up not having anything left, you know, and as I said earlier, I've never gotten emotionally attached to a business. So my wife used to, she was my a little bit of tester. She would say, well, remember, it, Harry, you can't do it but one time. That would be whether I was thinking about selling part of, of a dealership to one of our managers or whether it was selling a dealership. But in um, fact, just today, Sam, I was talking to my son-in-law. And we were reminiscing, something came up and we were reminiscing about three of the dealerships that we sold in Memphis and about how our timing was so good. We, uh, we had three Lincoln Mercury stores in Memphis and that was real unusual. Usually they'd just be one and somebody else would own another one and somebody else another one. We could never make Ford Motor Company happy with what we sold. I mean, they were, they were always on us about selling more cars. And so finally I called them up one day and I said, uh, you know, we've done everything we can to sell more cars, and we can't make y'all happy. How would you like to buy one of our dealerships? <laughs> and, man, they jumped at it. And uh, as uh, a long story short, we sold them one. And, they, and in the process, I asked them, I said, well, would you like to buy another one? <laughs> <laughs> they said, no, I believe one's enough. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we sold it to them. And uh, that dealership is uh, – Got grass growing up in the pavement today. Sound covering the Pike, And uh, we sold them the building, sold them everything. And then uh, out on Mendenhall, you're familiar with Mount Moriah, Mendenhall? Yes, sir. America, that was used to be the car market road. And uh, there's still some car dealerships there. But uh, we sold that car dealership and sold the building and the dealership. And about two years later, They they quit making Mercury's and uh, that dealership closed. And then there was across the street, we had the Jeep Chrysler Dodge dealership. We bought those individually and put them together and we sold it and it closed later. So our timing was just a God thing. You know, it was just a real blessing to sell them. So there was a time, you know, it was a time to buy. And there was a time to sell and uh we've been out of the car business now for about 15 years but we could have kept those dealerships and we would we had to close them we'd have lost everything we'd lost our building it's changed that much yeah well the location changed uh it's a bad location plus they did away with mercury and gave the lincoln franchises to the ford stores that would build a separate showroom so for all practical purposes, Lincoln almost just closed up. Yes, sir. And and then the Dodge Chrysler uh, Jeep. Chrysler opened too many stores. When we first bought it, we were one of about three dealerships uh, that had Jeep. And uh, and then I think when we sold it, there was about 25 or six Jeep dealers in our Memphis market. And so the, the manufacturers just made it unprofitable. So we were just blessed. You know, God just was really blessed us by our timing of selling the dealerships.
0: Yes, sir. I mean, it sounds like it really didn't have an option to do it differently in the long run because of the way the market changed or the way these larger brands, how they closed or changed. If you had a kept them or you had wanted to pass these on to the next generation, you, you
1: couldn't. Well, see, we could have gone out to Carrierville and, and built a new uh, Lincoln Mercury store. But if we had it, we'd have found out they're going to close Mercury. <laughs> we'd been in real trouble. We'd had an empty dealership. And then uh, we thought about, oh, uh, well, we thought about moving our Toyota store that we had down on Brooks Road to Carrierville. But one thing is I didn't want to spend a big, huge amount of money on a new car dealership and uh, we had made some money and i wanted to keep it i wanted to end up with some money and not uh, as it worked out some empty car dealerships
0: i hear you what's it been like you know i know i think it's close to was it 448 acres that you have on shilling farms
1: right that's exactly right
0: what's it been like if you think about from a next generation standpoint to take such a large piece of land in a you know, right in the middle of Cairoville, right outside of Memphis to take 448 acres, to be able to use that and to, to build things from scratch for people. What's it been like at this phase of your life?
1: It was, uh, it was, it was really a neat experience. You know, Sam, when I started getting out of the car business, I, I had to ask myself the question, is my identity in Memphis being a car dealer? And uh, I didn't think about that very long. I didn't dwell on it very long. And uh, it didn't bother me, you know. But I still had shilling farms. And so I had the same thought about shilling farms, you know, if I sell shilling farms, is that part of my identity? And, uh, you know, I, I didn't dwell on that very long. I said, no, I'm not, that's not a concern for me. And uh, what happened? The boys were getting older and I was getting older. And their younger kids were coming in, you know, starting to take over management. You know, Rusty's pretty much retired. Yes, sir. And, were. And, uh, and so Rusty and I had been in this thing together. And so I had a little window of opportunity to sell my interest in, in uh, children farms to uh, fall. And uh, I didn't think that window was going to be open for a real long period of time. And so my family was not interested in running it, managing it, going to meetings every month. And so uh, we worked out a, a deal with the uh, with the boys and sold it. But our partnership worked out good for a lot of reasons. One is I knew that they were they were strong managers. They were experienced. And they uh, if they told you they were going to do something, they would do it. But at the same time, if you if if they were to deal out with you, they expected you to do what you said you were going to do, too. So they were very businesslike and all they did rusty was one of the ones i worked with mostly and he was very very good to work with but um uh, the uh you know i wanted chilling farms my goal was for it to have a good testimony in the community and uh for example we had a prohibition against alcohol and the balls went along with that now that i've sold it uh, i'm not sure that that prohibition is going to hold up but I'm hoping it will. But anyway, we wanted a place where people could work and play and live and worship. And one of the first things we did was to give the uh, YMCA some land, and they built it showing farms YMCA. And there was a church. There is a church out there, and uh, and then, of course a lot of residential and, and apartments. So it it, Ball's done a very good job of of uh, of building it out. I think it's first class. I think it's something that's a uh, car was proud of and uh and i'm thankful for it but you know it didn't really bother me real a whole bunch to sell to sell you know i'm gonna i'm gonna die one of these days you know and thankfully gonna go to heaven because i'm a believer but can't hold on to it forever you know i'm i was gonna be rid of Shilling farms one way or another I guess my family could have taken it over even though they didn't really have a desire to i could have kept it and we'd have had to have been a forced sale at some point, you know, or I could sell it. And uh, I I chose to sell it. Looking back three or four years later, am I sorry I did? No, not really. So I don't know. Not sure if that answers your question.
0: Yes, sir. I mean, it sounds like through circumstances talked about earlier on, you were able to have this asset and a very large asset right in the middle of a of a town and outside of a large city, and you found a partner that you enjoyed doing business with, and you're very proud of the quality and the professionalism of the partner that you have. And, and obviously you moved on from it, so you don't. it sounds like you just don't hold it real tightly, but you're also proud of, you feel the, the partner that you had in it, everything was clear and everybody honored their deal. And, and you're proud holistically, the value that it provides the community, which I guess there's a lot of people that get in situations, or not a lot, but people that get in situations like you described where they might not know what they're doing and get in over their heads, or they might get partnered up with someone where it's less reliable or less trustworthy, or they might have to be forced to do something and, and take a hit on it for what it's worth. And it sounds like just the way that you've described it it's been a win win across the board
1: well, it has, and what you said is so good. See, I had three choices early on about developing that property. I could have tried to do it myself, and I would have had to hire a couple of people to help me, but they could have come and gone or not done a good job, and or I could have just sold the whole thing out at wholesale price and uh or I could have gotten somebody like Ball Ball is really about the only one in Memphis that's big enough that I would have probably uh you know, done that with. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, I felt like they probably were. And you said something too earlier that I thought was really good is uh, about holding on too tight. I think that probably explains selling the dealerships, maybe and selling the the heating, air conditioning distributorship down in Birmingham and selling shilling farms is uh, I didn't try to hold on maybe too tight, uh, which might have been to my detriment and to my family's. And I uh, was willing to let go. So that's, yes, uh, that, that's probably a good theme maybe for a lot of people in life is don't hold on to things too tight and be willing to let go. Yes,
0: sir. Have you ever had second thoughts about giving away close to 50% of your income the way you talked about in your book?
1: Not a bit. Not a bit. You know, uh, at Jarman's Shoes in the Nashville he was in business He made shoes and uh, i think i got this right and uh he went broke he gave away a lot of money and uh and he went broke and they asked him one time they said mr jarman are you sorry you gave away all that money and he said to him he said you know what that's all i got left <laughs> isn't that neat yes sir and, and, you know, it's just like my wife and I, we live a very simple life. You know, about six o'clock tonight, we'll say, well, let's go put on our comfortable clothes. And, uh, we'll fix a little chicken salad and a minute cheese and some crackers. And, uh, we'll turn on the TV and watch some of the things we pre-reported. And, uh, about nine thirty, she knits, she sits over there and knits. And I sit over there and look at stock market stuff or something. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll go to bed about 9.30 or 10. And uh, that's our life. You know, we're happy with it. If we had $200 million, we wouldn't do anything any different, you know. <laughs> we would do the same thing because we've been there and done that. You know, we've been on a lot of trips. We've traveled. You know, we've done things. Every day is a blessing that we have. And we, uh, we love each other. We're our best friends. And uh, life's pretty simple for us, you know.
0: I know your contemporaries that you have or men and women that you've met or other type of entrepreneurs or business people that when they get to that phase of life that you're at right now, and they might not believe the same things you believe, do you think people struggle even if they have a lot of money or they've had a big business or big companies, et cetera, do they struggle with significance if they feel maybe forgotten about or less in the game so to speak
1: yeah I think probably they do uh one of the things that people in my age are going through is what do I do with my money what am I going to do with it maybe they've got some children they can't trust to handle it right you know to manage it right or maybe they're on drugs you know or or uh, alcohol or or you know just have gone off the deep end and they don't know what to do with it and they're not givers you know they don't give you know much of it away and they're really kind of miserable you know because they don't know what to do you know with it and uh i am so thankful that and I, you know I've, i say this and i guess tomorrow my family could go off the deep end but i'm so thankful that we've got a foundation that uh we've had for years and uh i I have such a peace that when I die, that whatever's in that foundation, my daughter and my grandboys will do as good or better job giving that money away than I will. And and then also, as far as whatever my wife and I have left personally, I know that they'll be good stewards of it and uh, and take care of it. And so I don't have to have any fear of dying and what's going to happen to it or you know trying to control it or i'm telling you sam day such a blessing and i'm so thankful god has just blessed me with a, with a really a, a a wonderful family i know that they will try to give it away in the way i would want to give it away you know and not give it to things that are kind of way out or something like that but we've we've worked together as a family and we we have meetings together with our foundation and uh but but again, going back to what you are saying about other people, I've, I've got some friends I know that aren't in that situation and uh, trying to figure out what to do. But we got to all let go one day because, you know, God's going to call us all home or, and uh, it's going to be over. Life, life is brief and short.
0: Yes, sir. You've got a reputation and a story as a man that, you know, moved here from what I saw, thirty-seven. I think that's right. You came up here from Florence, Alabama, thirty-seven, right? You take over. I think at that time, it was one of the largest private companies in the city, had a thousand employees, hundred million dollars in revenue. We've already laid that out. It was about to go bankrupt, or was already bankrupt to a certain degree. And you know, you have the story of the Battle in Ford calling them on some stuff trying to protect the family, trying to protect your company, and then going through those choppy years, turning things around, and then doubling down on automobile dealerships and growing those and buying those and selling those, and then having 448 acres outside of Memphis, Tennessee, and Cairoville at Shilling Farms and developing that, partnering with with a great developer there. So you have this story of really coming in and be able to turn this around. And in your book, you talk a lot. You don't take credit. You don't single yourself out for your own talents. You're you're very candid about that and authentic. But you also talk about being thankful for second chances. And you talk about how relationships are the most important thing. Uh, They matter most. I'm just curious. With somebody that has the success or the story that you have, why are you thankful for second chances, and what has that meant to you throughout your career?
1: Well, I think a lot of it is probably peace of mind, that uh, I don't have to dwell on the past, you know, so much, or things I wish I had done different, just like I have, for the last seven or eight years, I've I've taught this ethics class at the University of Memphis. I'm I'm what they call an executive in residence. It doesn't pay anything, but uh, it's, it's nice to be with the students. But uh, it's on ethics pretty much. And uh, I, I, I I have about four or five classes a semester, and I've not done it this year because of the COVID, because they're not meeting in, in public. But after uh, each class, uh, when I go to, they, they ask me questions sometimes. And one of the guys asked me a question one time. He said, if you had to do it again, what would you do different? And uh, boy, just like that, Sam, uh, it came, this came to my mind and I was transparent with myself. I, I had to do it again. I spent more time building small memories with my daughter. I said, now, we did a lot of things. We went to church together and we, we went to ball games together. We traveled together, but I would have done more things like taking her on a field trip with her school, buying her a fishing pole and taking her fishing. Uh, if I had to do it again, I would, I would do that. But, but God's redeemed that time for the last 30 years. My daughter has lived right behind me. And, we, uh, and I see her all the time. We've got a great relationship. And so that's a situation of where, you know, God gave me a second chance, you know, to do those things with my daughter that I wish I had done more of when I was growing up. But I was like 21 when she was born. I was all I was thinking about pretty much was just working, you know, and uh, and then there's other things, you know, where God has given me uh, you know, second chances, and I'm so thankful.
0: Well, you told me to call you Harry, that feels not very respectful and polite on my end, but
1: well, that's me, Harry.
0: It's been a true honor and a pleasure to be with you this afternoon, and I can't wait after we get this edited and produced and we'll be releasing it in the next few weeks but it's been a true honor and a privilege to not just to talk to you today but also over the last few weeks and hope to see you in person sometime hey everybody since you've made it this far in the show i want to share with you something that you may love a few months ago i was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s she lives outside of the united states and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show. And you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.